Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Under Chairman Ajit Pai's leadership, the Federal Communications Commission has enacted policies that have increased internet speeds, accelerated the creation and build-out of 5G networks, and brought broadband to many people in unserved communities. Chairman Pai's FCC leadership has gone beyond the market-based regulatory reforms by implementing common-sense changes to help citizens by creating a new suicide hotline and finally lowering interstate prison phone rate caps. Chairman Pai recently announced he would be departing the FCC after President-elect Biden's inauguration, but his legacy will leave a lasting imprint on the agency. Specifically, he will be remembered for his innovation-friendly, light-touch regulatory approach to policymaking, and of course, his love for Twitter. I'm joined today by my AEI colleague, Daniel Lyons. He and I have the opportunity to talk to Chairman Pai on how the FCC has navigated the complex issues around 5G, spectrum allocation, restoring internet freedom, and many other key issues over the past four years. Chairman Pai's reflection on his tenure at the FCC and his thoughts on the agency's future offer a unique lens into the current state of American technology policy. We are deeply grateful for the chance to speak with him today. Chairman, thank you so much for joining us today. Closing the digital divide has been a top priority in your chairmanship really since day one. Do you feel like we're making progress? I do feel like we're making progress. Before I give you a further answer, as to why, I just want to thank you, Shane and Daniel, for taking the time to speak with me today and to explore some of the views I've had, and more importantly, for your support over the last four years. We've made incredible progress across a number of different fronts, which I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about. But your support, your friendship, and the leadership you've shown in this field has been incredible. So thank you for that. The digital divide, as I said on my first full day in office in 2017, was going to be our top priority. And I do think we've done a tremendous amount to tackle that priority from the Connect America Fund Phase 2 auction that we held in 2018, to the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund auction that just concluded, and we'll be announcing the results of that shortly, to some of the bread and butter regulatory reforms we've introduced to encourage the private sector to invest. And as a result of a lot of these different initiatives, the number of people who have access to the internet in the United States has gone up substantially. The number of people who have access to very high-speed internet, 250 megabits per second or greater, has gone up substantially. And especially with the advent of some of these new technologies, low Earth orbit satellites, fixed wireless using the six gigahertz band, I think it's only going to close further that gap between those who have access and those who don't. So very excited about what all this means for American communities who previously were on the wrong side of that divide. You guys have done a great job. I didn't think anyone was ever going to break the juggernaut between the interagency process on Spectrum. So major kudos to you guys on that. Yeah, a lot more gray hair now than I had when I took the job. I can tell you that. And attributable in part to that issue. You got DOD talking out loud. So we're hoping they'll keep up with that. So really freeing up unused spectrum for commercial use has been a major thing that you guys have accomplished and I hope continues beyond January 20th of 2021. But the new licensing proposals, removing barriers to development, and then including the states and local governments was seemed to be really key. So kind of a question in my nightmares is, you know, what happens if this stops? What if we stop reallocating spectrum? I think that would be exceptionally unfortunate because then spectrum availability becomes a bottleneck that prevents innovators and entrepreneurs from raising capital and investing here in the United States. And that's not something that we want to see. And I've got to say that you, know, regardless of party affiliation, these issues are not easy in the least. I mean, you mentioned, for example, the interagency battles. 
we didn't have to pick those battles. In fact, my predecessors, several of them, thought it was easier just to kick the can down the road to propose further study or have a working group look at things or just let it sit on a shelf. And one of the things I testified before the Senate Commerce Committee in the summer on was the fact that that's not why we're in these jobs. We're in these jobs to make the difficult decisions. You can never make progress if you're just simply waiting for things to happen. You have to make them happen. And Spectrum is a good example of that on a number of different things, the 5.9 gigahertz band, the L band, some of the other bands that we've had battles on. It would have been very easy for me just to say, let's just you know, put it on hold and go slowly. But to me, I don't want spectrum availability, either licensed or unlicensed, to be a bottleneck for those who have the next great application or service that they want to develop. The same thing goes with some of the removing barriers to deployment that you talked about, and also the state and local government issues. And we've made some decisions. Some of them were controversial. In fact, a number of them were party line votes at the FCC and engendered opposition in Congress. But at the end of the day, number one, they were ratified by the courts. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit had a great decision affirming the vast majority of the infrastructure decisions we made. Also, the other thing is that it's critical to enabling infrastructure to be built at the scale and at the pace you need in order to build this next generation networks. And when you look at the fiber records we set for deployment in 2018 and 2019, the fact that we had something like 76,000 small cells deployed in 2018 and 2019, which was 10x 2013 to 2016. The decisions we've made have been the right ones in order for Americans to enjoy what I call digital opportunity going forward. So here too, I hope the next commission will have a sense of courage when it comes to tackling the decisions and a sense of wisdom when it comes to how it approaches those issues and makes those decisions. We'll see. Hopefully the past will be prologue. Well, great work. And I too hope it continues. Daniel, let's bring you into this conversation. Yeah. So one of your highest profile policy initiatives was the restoring internet freedom which repealed the Obama-era net neutrality rules for ISPs. And even though net neutrality became a, let's say, touchy political issue, the internet's reliance during the pandemic, I think, has largely proved your critics wrong. It's now fairly clear that that light-touch regulatory approach is what made it possible to build out the infrastructure that, that gave us the network capacity that we needed. But even before the pandemic, we saw internet speeds had doubled, fiber deployment was increased, and the anti-competitive conduct that people fear never actually happened at the ISP. How important is it for us to maintain that light-touch regulatory framework going forward? That's a good question. I do think it is the wise move, and I think it's an important move as well. And the contrast with Europe that you cited is instructive. Unlike the European Union, we did not have to go hat in hand to content companies like YouTube and Netflix and Hulu and ask them to throttle content to reduce it from high definition to standard definition. And you can only imagine what European consumers must feel because they've got the utility-style regulation that net neutrality zealots here in the United States prize, and they've got crappier service during the pandemic as a result of that. And that's a direct result, I would argue, of the fact that they, they in Europe have, generally speaking, disincentivized infrastructure investment. It simply doesn't generate the return on the investment to build high-capacity, resilient infrastructure. And so as a result, Europe has had something like 50% less per capita capex in Europe compared to the United States. And over time, that results in subpar networks. And that hasn't happened in the United States. And so what I would hope is that those of good faith, if there are any left on this issue, would recognize that the religious fervor around utility-style regulation of the internet sounds great, but the practical consequences for actual consumers who rely on the internet are not good at all. And so we took a lot of arrows in 2017, and the predictions were hyperbolic at best. But over time, I think people have recognized 
that they were sold a bill of goods on this issue, that it doesn't really make any sense to heavily regulate something. And conversely, that light touch regulation that we restored in 2017 actually hasn't been the end of the world. And in fact, it's made the internet better than ever. So I recognize, obviously, that this is an issue where there's a lot more political salience than there is reasoned policy judgment. But hopefully the next FCC will see things the same way, too. Another key issue during your tenure has been the amazing build out of 5G and the need to create a secure and trusted supply chain, which is a real challenge in network operations. We've had several countries, including the United States, that have already chosen to ban Huawei equipment from their networks. This last week, finally, I think England has decided to do this. Are we making progress here? We are making tremendous progress. And this is one of the areas that I'm exceptionally proud about. Domestically, for example, we were proactive. We were the first FCC in history to take the Universal Service Fund monies that were at our disposal and make clear to carriers that prospectively, we did not want them to spend that funding on equipment or services that posed a national security threat. And we also went proactively to other parts of the federal government that have primary responsibility for these issues, national security agencies, law enforcement agencies, and the intelligence communities, and worked with them for them to give us the information we needed in order to make a determination about what companies constituted a threat, but also to set up framework for evaluating these issues going forward. And that's part of the team telecom order, for instance, that the SEC finally got across the finish line in consultation with the executive branch. And that's just with respect to our USF policies prospectively. Retroactively, we've also instituted a rip and replace mandate, as you're probably aware. And we've urged Congress for quite some time now to give us the necessary funding to accommodate that mandate. And hopefully they will come through with that very soon because there too, there's bipartisan support for that issue. So that alone domestically, I think would be a good story. But I think one of the things that I'm very proud of, and it wasn't easy to do either, was to roll up our sleeves and work with our counterparts around the world. And so for the last two years running, I've been a part of the US delegation to Prague where, well, this year virtually, of course, but where we worked with some 32 other nations to come up with a shared group of principles embracing a risk-based framework for evaluating security issues. And for a while, we got a little bit of scoffing here in the United States, including at the commission and on Capitol Hill, oh, this doesn't make any difference. Administration has a very fragmented message. It's not getting anywhere. But now the results are starting to come in where England and Germany and private operators as well, Reliance Geo in India and Telstra in Australia and SK and KT in Korea, they're making these decisions to use trusted vendors. And that's in part, I would think, because we have been very persistent and very thoughtful in our approach with those countries. The other thing also, we've embraced the free market approach to solving this problem. It's not just the US saying, okay, let's ban problematic equipment, but we're also encouraging innovation out of that problem. So yeah, open radio access networks, of course, has generated a lot of buzz recently. And I'm a believer in the potential of that technology to help us put the keys to security in the hands of the operator, in addition to a technological solution that reduces costs dramatically. So I think as ORAN starts to be deployed more in networks, both standalone 5G networks and overlay on 4G networks, we're going to see a security solution and a much more diverse vendor supplier market than we've ever seen before. So the FCC has helped encourage that through the Open RAN forum we held and a few other things we've done behind the scenes. Yeah, it's really exciting. Software-defined networks, I can talk about that for hours. But I it's amazing when you think about it. It's, I, mean, well, I was just trying to describe it. I was talking to some folks from my hometown about what the wireless networks of the future are going to look like. And I said, look, just imagine, instead of these big macro cell towers you see intermittently dotting the landscapes, what if everything was driven by essentially software? And it's, you know, it's sort of like the migration from 
CDs to right. you know, the digital music we all enjoy. You don't, can't see it, but you know it's there. And that's exactly sort of the analogy I used. And it's much more nimble, much more efficient, and much cheaper for people to build. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Daniel, do you have another question? Yeah. So as chairman, you've also overseen a number of sort of below the radar internal process reforms, things like the establishment of the FCC's Office of Economics and Analytics. Can you point us to some recent decisions in which that new office has been especially helpful? Thanks for flagging that. This would have been one of my favorite process reforms and inspired in part by one of my law school professors, Cass Sunstein, who was President Obama's head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And he has consistently pushed for cost-benefit analysis and just the reification of economic analysis when agencies are making decisions. And so I took that seriously. And in 2017, we proposed, in 2018, we actually did create the Office of Economics and Analytics to centralize the economic function and data analytical function at the FCC. So they've had a seat at the table for some of the critical things that we've done. And are there any number of things I could point to? The auction team, for example, is located within OEA. So They've helped us conduct some of the critical auctions, the CBRS auction we held earlier this summer, the reverse auction for rural broadband, the RDOF that we just finished recently. But two of the things I will highlight that are pretty interesting to me, even if they might seem kind of arcane to others, is the data collection that they helped us do on the inmate calling services determinations that we've made. So collecting all of this information from prisons and jails about the calling rates, interstate and intrastate, highly, highly technical, and it helped us build a foundation for moving forward with a thoughtful proposal that I believe ultimately will stand the test of time if there's a petition for review filed in the Court of Appeals. And in terms of data analytics, they've helped us create the digital opportunity data collection. There's been a lot of complaints about broadband mapping, for example. And so we said, well, what if we establish a more granular way of collecting this information so that instead of by the census block, you could even get down to the household and you could employ crowdsourcing and other third-party techniques to verify the information that comes in. And the OEA has been critical to helping us set up that digital opportunity data collection. Now, obviously here too, it relies on Congress to give us additional funding to help you know, set up the backend IT and other issues that we need to resolve. But OEA has been absolutely vital. And so here too, this is one of the reforms I hope will be seen in the years to come as a fundamental improvement on the way the FCC makes decisions. Yeah, broadband mapping. I mean, I feel like the numbers are so astronomical, especially after COVID spending. I'm like, oh my God. Figure out where we're putting what money and is it making a difference? You know, just mm, can't absolutely. <laughs> Another issue that you seem to have a personal passion for was the new suicide hotline that was put in place. I know there was an originally a call by Congress to study this, but was there something in the report that you flagged that was really a priority for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Like most Americans, I've had friends and family who've struggled with these issues over time. And life is hard. It's really hard. And especially nowadays, it's even harder with people, some of them feeling dislocated from their friends and family and feelings of isolation and stress have just generated the dramatic increase in some of the mental health issues. And I think that one of the things that best exhibits our sense of community is the fact that we want here in this country, we want people who are struggling to be connected with those who can help. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a great example of how that's done. Yeah, I had a chance to visit just before the pandemic ceased our travel, a mental health center in Toledo, Ohio, where I spoke with some of the counselors who work the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, as well as some of the other advocates in the space. And they told me that some 95% of people who either visit the center or who call the center are dissuaded from attempting suicide as a result of that. That's a significant number, but it's hard when you think about it in a pinch if you're struggling to remember 
8255 or 273 talk. So that's part of the reason why I thought, boy, if we had a three digit number like 988 that has an echo of 911, that doesn't cause a lot of disruption to the existing numbering system, what a benefit that would be to veterans and LGBTQ youth and rural Americans and other vulnerable populations. And, you know, I hope that in the time to come when this is implemented by July of 2022, I'm confident it's going to save thousands and thousands of lives. And for whatever people believe about net neutrality or this or that issue, this is the issue, I think, that is ultimately going to really make Americans sit up and say, wow, the FCC did something so fundamentally in the public interest that we're glad that they took an initiative back in 2020 or 2019. It's kind of like George Bush with the ADA Act. No one will remember you did it, but they'll remember it happened. Yeah, exactly. And that's good enough for me. It's, you know, look, I don't need the credit personally, but the credit really goes to our FCC staff and the Wireline Competition Bureau and OEA and others that they do the heavy lifting on all these issues. And I've always said our career staff is just the, they are the unsung heroes of the FCC and they're the best assets that any organization could ever have. So true. So looking ahead to the agency's future, what do you anticipate will be the greatest opportunities for bipartisan cooperation under the next FCC chair? So I think certainly the spectrum issues should be. They haven't been in the past, unfortunately, on all the license issues 2.5, 3.5, 3.7, and others, they've been unfortunately partisan. But I think going forward, hopefully people of goodwill can come and recognize that getting more licensed and non-licensed spectrum out there, putting the airwaves to use for the American public is a good thing. And they can find ways to cooperate on that. I certainly hope the digital divide work will bring people together. The pandemic has only underscored the importance of broadband and making sure that every American has access to what I call digital opportunity is so, so important. And then some of the offshoots of that, the verticals, as they might say, from broadband use are going to be critical, telehealth first and foremost among them. And so the bespoke COVID-19 telehealth program we set up and executed successfully, I believe, hopefully will serve as a model. And so that my successors will be able to go to Congress and say, hey, you know, we did a great job in the COVID-19 telehealth program. Why don't you break down some of these barriers and give us dedicated funding to enable us to do this going forward? That would be a great thing for them to do. So I think they're notwithstanding the back and forth of the (laughs) political debates that we see in Washington. I hope that the FCC will continue to be an oasis more often than not anyway, for some issues like that. Mr. Chairman, you announced your departure for January 20th. Anything you can share with us that might be on your horizon as you leave the FCC? Yeah, I'm just so grateful. I know it sounds cheesy, but folks who have known me for a long time, going back to grade school, they know the shy, awkward, dorky kid I was in rural Kansas in the 1970s and 80s. And so as I've had a chance to reflect over the past several months, as I've thought about what I would want to do, I'm just overwhelmed with a feeling of gratitude for this country that embraced my family, my friends who have been with me every step of the way, including over the last four tumultuous years, my family who have been supportive every minute of every day. It's really overwhelming when you think about it, that how someone like me got into a position like this and was able to serve and get to work on these issues is just really overwhelming. And going forward, I'm not sure what the future is going to hold. I'm excited about what that adventure is going to be. But I do have faith that whatever it is, it will be a rewarding path. One of the things I've noticed in my time since finishing grad school is that I always tried to do the best job I could in whatever the job was. And somehow the next job always seemed to take care of itself. And I have faith that in the future, that pattern is going to hold. And so who knows? We'll see what it ends up being. I have joked that I would be willing and able to replace Judge Judy, willing and perhaps (laughs) less able to be a receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs. 
But assuming neither of those two options is on the table, <laughs> I'll have to cast a little bit of a wider net to figure out where exactly I'm going to plant my flag. Well, we will keep an eye out and we want to thank you for your final words of wisdom. And thank you for all your leadership on so many issues that are going to be key to our future. Yeah, thank you so much for your service. Oh my God, you're both so kind. Thanks so much. And as I said at the beginning, you've been fantastic writing and speaking and tweeting and just otherwise building the case for thoughtful policy at the FCC and beyond. And so it's one thing for me to be staring at a screen and pushing out paper, but you're helping to advance the case in the public square. So thank you for everything that you've done and for your friendship over the past many years. It's been great working with you. Well, it's been great working with you and your team. Chairman Pai, thank you again for joining us and we wish you well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.